Welcome to the Surveyor Hub podcast with me, Marion Ellis, a chartered surveyor, coach, business mentor, and founder of the Surveyor Hub community. Each week on this podcast, I speak to surveyors and people in the industry about their careers, business journeys, and day-to-day work. Listen to their real-life stories, step into their shoes, and leave feeling connected to the conversation. So welcome to today's podcast. Now, this is a bit of an unusual one. It was going to be a podcast special where I basically talked to myself and shared some of my journey, but I've realized that I don't like talking to myself and I've tried to record this a couple of times. And so I reached out to my network and asked if somebody would like to interview me. And uh, may I introduce Daniel Heinsen? Hello. Hello there. So you're going to interview me today. Can't wait. <laughs> yeah, right. Or rather, you know, these aren't interviews. I tell I tell everybody who comes on the podcast, it's not an interview, it's a chat. So I don't know why I feel so nervous. But for those who are listening, uh, Daniel, do you want to introduce yourself? Yeah, by all means, I'm uh, a chartered surveyor and I think first crossed paths with Marion earlier on in the year and I joined the Mastermind uh, cohort. I think it was your, was it the second um, yeah, group. it was one in the summer, wasn't it? It was yeah. the uh, hardcore Sunday morning, eight o'clock. That was it. Yeah. yeah, through through the um, thick of the first first lockdown when things quite hadn't got as drawn out as they have now. So yeah. And this session really came about because I've been talking to a few different surveyors. One particular uh, trainee surveyor, Craig, who re- reached out to me and asked me how did I put a podcast together? And he was interested in doing something similar. So I had a chat with him and told him what I did and and how it came about. And as a trainee, he was asking me lots of questions, trying to put together, I guess, the story of the Surveyor Hub and Blue Box and women in surveying and all of these things that I sometimes throw into the conversation. So in part, it felt like a good time at the end of the year to do a bit of a an overview and a roundup. But when I started to do that, I realized, you know, I don't like talking to myself. (laughs) I got all, you know, iffy and squishy about it. And then hence I thought, you know, reach out to some people and see what people thought about asking me questions, which also feels a bit weird, you know, asking someone to interview me. But also the more that I share about my career, just like my podcast guests have, then I know it makes a difference to people. And sometimes you need to put yourself out in all vulnerability. So that's exactly how I feel right now. So uh, one of your toughest jobs, Daniel, is going to be to lead this because I'm quite, quite good at turning it around. And I'm desperate to ask you about your career and how did you get started? <laughs> well, I'll start off then with uh, maybe uh, the the early years. So I gather you're originally from South Wales. Um, oh no 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 no! I'm from oh, North no. Wales. You're from North Wales. I'm so sorry. Wales. Yeah. Um, oh, oh dear. Well, we've already got off on the bad foot. So Neil Hewitt wondered if you could describe uh, the you know your sort of early years there, and um, wondered if you could if you recall at all being interested in property through your childhood at all. Or did so, you just fall into the job, as you put it, in so many yeah. of your other podcasts? Yeah, I did. I did fall into it, but I fell into it in a really weird kind of way. 
So I'm from North Wales, which is very different. I do sound like I'm from South Wales when I've had a couple of glasses of wine and the accent uh, comes out, but I've, I've moved away many years ago now, so I've, I've lost it. And I grew up on a, a council estate, quite mediocre council estate. And I was always very aware of my environment, aware of, you know, housing, quality of housing. You know, we were in rented um, accommodation. My mum um, actually bought our council house to Margaret Thatcher's right to buy scheme. You know, that whole sort of put your money in bricks and mortar. And she had a terrible experience. You know, this was, you know, she was advised by the bank, you don't need a survey because it's a mid-terrace. Uh, and a number of years later, actually, as I was qualifying to be a surveyor, and it was hard because I couldn't get home to, to support her, but she had sulfate attack uh, and the yeah. whole floor came up and it had to be underpinned. And because it was a terrace and a privately owned one, she didn't have the money to sort it out, but she had to find somewhere else to live. And thankfully, the council paid mo- for most of it through a, through a grant. But it was a real eye opener for me in we, we crave our own homes and that, that security, the roof over our head. And yet it can make us so vulnerable if you make the wrong choices. But as I, and although I grew up in that environment, I was adamant that I didn't want to work in social housing. But, you know, I wanted to do something different and I really wanted to, to move away. Through school, so, you know, did I have any, any interest in property? But not really. It seemed like a hassle. With all the things that went wrong with our home, it just seemed like a hassle. I was quite creative and I really wanted to go to art school. So my local college was Wrexham and uh, you know, I, I wanted to go there. But I was encouraged, stroke talked out of it by my mum who couldn't really see a future in somebody who was an artist. And she kept on saying to me, what, what are you going to do when you finish art school? How are you going to earn money? And so understandably, you know, how are you going to keep a roof over your head and those things? And I didn't have the confidence to say, I've no idea, but it was something I really wanted to do. But I ended up then going to um, the local college at Yale, a sixth form college, and I did uh, geography, biology and uh, geology. I dropped biology because it was really, really hard and I couldn't do it, but I loved geography and geology. And so... You know, I, I was I was doing my A levels. Thought, well, okay, what am I going to do? And surveying had never entered my brain at all. But in looking at colleges, and I, I never until then, it sounds a bit weird now, but I'd I'd never, apart from that one holiday in France, I'd never left Wales. I had no reason to, and so I applied to the local college. The local, well, it was called an institute, North East Wales Institute, Newey. It's now it's now called Glyndwr University. And so I applied there and I uh, applied for estate management, thinking that would be a nice wrap all, you know, take geography and geology a a step forward. But unfortunately, when I did my A-levels, I was really poorly. and I discovered I had a tumour and I just wasn't, I mean, thankfully it wasn't cancerous, you know, and it was was dealt with. But uh, at 19, to deal with that and having to make these big choices, um, physically I wasn't very well. And so I decided not to go. My A-levels went great results. I can't even remember what they were, but they went great. But I still, you know, managed to get in and decided to postpone. And looking back, you know, I wish I hadn't because I often felt like I missed out. And I then became, when I did go back later as a mature student and everything that sort of stuck the stigma that you sometimes feel that you have with that. But, you know, I, I didn't do anything for about six months and then I had to look for a job. And actually my, f- my first job was a YTS job as a school receptionist in a secondary school. 
And that was a baptism of fire, as you can imagine, as you can imagine. And then for a few years, about three, four years, I did every kind of admin job you can imagine. I worked at BT on the phones, British Gas booking in appointments. I, I worked I worked in a, a motorsports mail ordering company called uh, Demon Tweaks, where they would order uh, boy racer car parts like big ball four exhausts and roll bars and 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 that was fine. But I I got to a point where I thought I'm not going to earn any more money where I am now. It was sucking the life out of me. You know, just, you know, I mean, I'd have been to my early 20s. Like this was it. And I had, I was in a relationship, I had a house, a car, a cat, and this what looked like a really good job. And I thought, well, what's next? And because of my, uh, the tumour that I had, I didn't know whether I could have children. And so I thought, I need a career. I need something. Otherwise, I don't have to go down worrying about this facility route. And I've seen that happen to some friends and, and, and family members. And so I decided to leave my, what looked like a a secure job. And I was going to do a marketing course. I thought I would take everything that I'd learned over the past few years, not not waste it and start to learn more about marketing. I've always been interested in businesses and how they, they operate and how they, you know, sort of promote themselves. And it was a big decision to, to take that advice. But on the day that I left my job, I got home and, and, makes it sound really old, but we didn't have mobile phones back then. But I left my job, got home on a Friday and there was a message on the phone saying we've cancelled the course because we've got uh, starting on Monday because we've not got enough people to start. Sorry about that. And so I had this weekend of, well, what am I going to do in my life? And what I did on the Mondays, I went back into the college, just wandered in and just said, I need to start a course doing something. And I bumped into the lecturer, Derek Jones, who ran the estate management course at the time. And he remembered me and said, yeah, let's get you back on. And so I I started and I and I did estate management. So yeah, it's, it's funny how you then, you know, where you get to and how things come, come back around. So once you'd done the course in estate management, did you just go straight into a some kind of graduate scheme or a corporate job? Yeah, I mean, there weren't many surveying or property jobs going around in uh, Wrexham and North Wales at the time, but the the college did have a really good link with Lang, Lang Homes, and they were really keen to take on mature students to work in their new build homes uh, business. So you say you were a mature student. How old were you at the time? So I'd have been about 25. Yeah, I always find it really funny how they call it a mature student at 25. (laughs) I know, but when you think about people who go straight from doing their A levels, completely, yeah. You know, and and I think that's actually a real advantage to surveyors that level of maturity, you know, that life experience, even if it's a gap year out, because you when you walk into people's homes, you walk into their lives, you know, and you're dealing with with life matters. Okay, you know, it's not like a doctor or anything, but you're you're dealing with really important matters to them, and I think you need a level of of life experience and maturity to do that. But I got on this graduate scheme. And I remember the first day thinking everyone else was worried about picking up the phone and talking to customers. And I was thinking, geez, am I going to make it through the next 18 months if I've got to be with these people? Because a lot, you know, I'd had experience, you know, if you've worked at BT or British Gas on the on the phones, you can literally deal with anything. But it did mean that I left home. And when I started the job, it was actually the first time I'd driven on a motorway and left right. Wales. Which sounds so like weird looking back, but it but it was. It was a bit it was a big thing. And I was leaving 
quite secure life to do something different. And it just felt like a, a leap of faith. And But that graduate scheme was one of the best things I ever did. I started in Birmingham and, and Leamington Spa in a department buying land, understanding how how that worked and and still you know still comparables. You're going out to site. I remember going into Birmingham council offices, and I think it was like the first time I'd been in some kind of it felt like a skyscraper, you know, but you know like a really high rise building and looking out because I'd never really been to. Oh, of to course, yeah, 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 and it was yeah. really really freaky. But that was that was really great insight into how developers work. And I remember one of my first jobs was to try and buy some land in Kidderminster. And, you know, I had this map and we had sticky dots of where we'd put things and prices. And we did all like the, you know, what effectively now would be, you know, residual valuation. And then because they really wanted it, they just bunged five million on top and they bought it. So that was really good experience. And then I moved through different departments. So commercial buying the bricks and working out what DPC is and all the different materials and what makes component parts. Um, I worked on site in St Albans as a site manager, which was, I was so out of my depth. <laughs> it was unbelievable. But, you know, naivety gets you through a lot of things when you're, you're, you're in your graduate role and asking the question. And that taught me never to be afraid to ask a question. And also as a woman, because I was seen as, you know, this young girl who didn't, um, back then I looked a bit younger than my age, but, you know, I looked at this young girl who didn't know anything, but you can use that to your advantage. And then I worked in a sales department, you know, so new build sales. And one of the jobs I had when I, when I graduated from the scheme, I, I stayed in that marketing role, which was great because you got in that marketing role, you got to see everything from buying the land, specking it out, designing it, and then actually selling it. And it was quite unique at the time to, to see all of that. But one of the jobs I had was that they gave me was to manage the sales team, which was a bunch of 35, 40 women who were divorcees, sharp saleswomen who could sell houses to anybody. And they had me at mid-20s <laughs> managing them. And it was a real baptism of fire. They were not they were not kind. But that's where I experienced uh, um, effectively what I'd call a bully boss. And it was the first time I'd come across that kind of manager who does not know how to manage someone. And I wasn't, surprisingly, I wasn't very good at um, being told what to do. Uh, so there's a bit of a bit of a personality clash, but it, it was a really interesting time. It was a difficult time, but what I learned there, I had um, a car accident. I've had lots of car accidents. None of them my fault, I would add. But I had a car accident, which was um, when someone went back into the back of my car near one of the new build sites. And, you know, my boss expected me back in work the next day with a concussion. And do you know what? Those women got together and it was the first time I'd experienced sort of the power of network or a power of women coming together. And you did not mess with them. And they were so good and supportive and looked after me, you know, when I was on my own living in, you know, South London. And that, so it was, it was quite an experience, but I left that job eventually and I found myself out of work for a couple of months. I temped a bit, did some admin because I knew how to do that. And I was always quite confident that I could earn money doing something. And that's where I came across surveying. It was the first time really I'd came across surveying. And that was because a friend worked for um, Countrywide and she was on a, a graduate scheme there. And, and it's, I think it was the time when they were, they'd first or recently brought out tech associate I think it was called oh, yeah. Yeah, yeah. as as is now but because I'd always kept my APC diary up 
And I had like years literally of half an hour of reading Estates Gazettes, you know, everything, <laughs> whatever, everything I'd done. I only needed about three months valuation experience to get qualified. I was going under the planning and development route. So I, I joined the company for three months and ended up there being, you know, being there for 15 years. So yeah, it's funny where you end up and how that happens. So on that, Emma Walker, I think, is within your uh, Women in Surveying group. And sh- she asked, if has there been a particular best piece of advice that, ever, uh, that anyone's ever given to you? I think it's trust your gut instinct. You know, that, that sounds a bit, you know, wish-washy, really. But learning how to trust your gut instinct has been one of the, the best pieces of advice, really. Uh, and but really understanding what that means and why that's so important. Like most people... You know, I have imposter syndrome. I find this conversation quite awkward, Daniel. But through my career, I didn't feel good enough as a surveyor. I didn't feel as expert enough. You know, I was often given the admin jobs to do. And because I could do them, I would put myself in that position as the outsider and, you know, assume some of those roles. So like many, I've, uh, I've had that. But learning to trust your gut instinct, to do that, you need to know what's important to you, your values, and I need to understand, you know, what's right and wrong. And I think if I'd have honed that a lot earlier, I wouldn't have found myself in some quite crappy jobs um, or some difficult situations or, or definitely less stressful. And I think I'd have understood more about the things that really annoy me or frustrate me. So I think learning to do that is really, really key. I think you've previously mentioned this in the surveying hub whereby we've been talking about ethics. And I think you've always commented that if it doesn't feel right, you should really question whether it is. So that probably relates to that. So obviously throughout your um, surveying, you've developed your role, then focused towards sort of customer service complaints handling and now more executive role and mentoring position. You're now on the RICS Governing Council, which I'd, I'm very interested in, in terms of asking more questions. And Kate Taylor asked, quite interestingly, what made you want to apply for this position? Um, what prompted you, especially at this challenging time? You know, in learning more about surveyors and how they operate as people, one of the things I couldn't really ignore is that the majority of the surveyors that I work with and coach, you know, and a part of my community are RICS members. And so it was important to me to learn more about the gap, the gap between what happens on a Tuesday when a surveyor is out doing their inspections and doing their reports and dealing with customers, the gap between that and what happens at a global level, you know, and the decisions that are made and that ripple effect from not necessarily from top to bottom, but from a you know, the zooming out to the zooming in, I guess, you know, and what happens in between, because there's a sort of real cause and effect and and consequence of the decisions that are made and, and how people feel about those things, how they contribute, how they engage or don't. And so I was really interested in that. And so when the opportunity came up to apply, it just felt like the next thing to do. My decision to go for something like that, which again is was outside my comfort zone, but it, it's the things that everything you've done before that that lead that lead been. you that lead you yeah. to it. Did I just wake up one day and decide I want to be on governing council? No, I didn't. If I think back, you know, I've been learning a lot about people and people management and how businesses run and how the industry ticks for quite some time. 
And I joined the East Midlands Regional Board, um, I think about six months before, to get an insight as to what happens in my my local region uh, and who the people are and, and all of those things. And when the opportunity came up, I just I, I went for it for the experience, you know, the experience of what's it like to go through that interview process. And actually, I have to say, it was really fair. There's some key questions that they ask you. It's quite in depth, but also when I started to talk to uh, to other members about it, I was really encouraged. You know, so I, in many ways, I felt I was sort of on this wave of well, I think I can do this. What does it mean? People are encouraging me to do it, and then I find myself there. And it's a weird thing, you know. You go through the interview, and then you get, then there's like an election process, and people vote for you, and people say, you know, what's your campaign, Marion? I'm like, what campaign? You know, it's a really weird process to go to, and you, you go through, and you start to realise how big an organisation it is, and how many surveyors they are in the UK and, and, and globally. But it just felt like it just felt like the next thing to do to learn more as much as I can about surveyors, and that's what I'm I'm really really passionate about. As it uh, in terms of obviously, you said that you've pushed yourself outside of your comfort zone to do it, and it's it's interesting because I think we all do that. You know, you, you always apply for the job where you think, "Can I do this?" You apply, and then you get it, and then you think, "Oh, Craig's." But obviously, in terms of you applying for it, you would have had one type of expectation. How is that compared to the actual role itself? Has it been challenging? Has it been exhausting? It's, Do you completely regret well, it? Well, I guess you know when I when I came in <clears throat> and, and was elected, that was before a global pandemic, and, and in many ways, I was excited to travel the world. You know, because the first governing council meeting was meant to be in China, not far from where the <laughs> where it all, apparently it all started, and, and so I was I was excited to just broaden my horizons. You know, when you work in residential, you know, it's quite limited in many ways. You're limited to your to the the day and the, the properties you've seen in the day, the surveys you might talk to in a week, the regional meetings you might have in a month or a quarter. And, it, and it's quite limited. And so I was really excited about just learning more about the different, what I call flavours of surveyors and yeah. what makes them tick and what pulls them all together. The key to bridging that gap is three things, transparency, accountability, and visibility. But that works both ways. The decisions that are made at the top need to be clear and understood uh, by by all members, but also members on the ground, I think, could do a lot more to step up in terms of their visibility as surveyors and how they present themselves in their businesses and their, and their community. Their accountability, you know, there's no point any membership, RICS or other, going out on a consultation to get feedback uh, and then members moan about it, but then you discover that actually, you know, very few voted, very few actually shared their views and opinions, but they were quite happy to share it on social media. You know, we all have a, a part to play to try and bring that gap together. And I think that's been my my biggest learning is what I'd hoped to to understand more about. But for me, that really see that as the way forward. Is that easy? Absolutely not. It's a 152-year-old institution that has mechanisms and ways of, of operating. That doesn't mean that they can't be refined, but we all within an organisation have to contribute to make the difference. So I know that you're very passionate about diversity and inclusion. Uh, Sharon Slinger wondered, why do you think it's important that institutions like the RSES have diverse representation in governance roles? How would you encourage other women to put themselves forward? Do you know, visibility of women 
is a really interesting thing that I've learned and noticed since I started talking about it's okay to be a woman. So after I left my corporate role, I mean, I mean, actually, before I left my corporate role, I started to talk about women in surveying and there isn't a women in surveying group or organization. And I was senior woman in my business as one of the probably the most for a time the most senior female surveyor in the in the board position and so you know you get curious about what does what other women are, are out there and um, when I left my corporate role I had some time off to think about life and I did a virtual summit called the Women in Surveying Sisterhood Summit I had not done anything like that before it was part of a leadership project that I was supposed to have done couple of years before and I've got this I thought I've got this time off and I'll I'll do it but I had to really put myself out there and talk about why it's okay to be a woman and I think the thing that spurred me on was the backlash of people coming back to me saying you know we don't need this you know why do you need to talk about being a woman things things are fine and the, the plan for the summit was I would talk to six women about what it's like to be a senior woman in the world of surveying and to inspire others. And I discovered as we went through these conversations, a a couple of things. I reached out to a network that I didn't really feel like I had at the time because I'd left a job. Do you know what? I felt on the floor in terms of my confidence. I didn't think I had a job in surveying anymore, but I thought, you know, I've got this time. I'll, I'll give this project a go. And I reached out to lots of women thinking nobody would come back to me, but they all did. And so I then had to have these conversations with them and I thought I'd keep it loose, a bit like my podcasts, I guess, that keep it loose and we'll see what comes out. And what came out of that was women who were quite frankly fed up of the way that they were being treated, you know, the frustrations that they had. They wanted to talk about everything from menopause, you know, maternity, you know, their career prospects. And I was really, really taken aback how they were feeling, how far we hadn't come over the past 10, 15 years, whatever, but also how open they were to sharing. And so that gave me a real boost. You know, it was it was great. I got connected to lots of women. But what I see is women really struggle with being visible and you have to put yourself out there. Do I feel confident doing some, you know, Facebook lives that I do? At the time, you know, when I first started, no, I had to learn how to do that. Am I always very articulate in the messages that I communicate? No, I've had to learn all to, how to do all of that. The early days have been some real bloopers. Now I just ignore them and, and get on. But if you don't learn how to do all of that, then you can't, you can't get your message out. And I guess it comes back to what you're most passionate about. And I really believe that women have so much more to give when it comes to surveying and the built environment and what we can contribute. But if we're not visible, we can't be role models for others. And I had no role models at all. No, no, not really. I mean, now I've got a great, you know, sort of peer group. I count them as my my role models. I learn something new every day. But if we're not out there showing people, you know, what can be done and what can be achieved, then we don't inspire anybody else. So how many members at the moment of um, the RSCS are women at the moment? So there's about 15% women. Did you mention there was about 4% FRICS? Yeah, yeah. Although though, what, one thing I'm really proud of is last year I um, set up a little Facebook group to go on my own journey to, bec- to get my fellowship. And a few women joined us. And it was really interesting to do that because really it was about, for me, it was that I'm a surveyor anymore because my idea of what a surveyor is, 
in the residential world, going out, doing inspections, you know, was, was quite blinkered. But I, as I went through the application process and put my submission together, I realised the kind of surveyor that I now am, you know, that I happen to do all of these different things. But one of the things I'm really proud of is that last year they had the most number of women become fellow members of the RICS ever. And, you know, that that wasn't a huge number, but it was the most. And I think, what did I do? I had a Facebook group and I talked about it. And if that all it takes to to do that, then clearly there's some really easy wins here for others to step up. So obviously Vanessa Hardwick was part of our group and and you've mentioned quite a lot there, but she's basically said that she found the Women in Surveying group really fantastic, you know, a great source of support for her. But wondered what does that mean to you? When I left my corporate job, you know, two and a half, three years ago, I felt on the floor. I walked away from a, a job. I didn't know what I was going to do. My confidence was so rock bottom. I thought, I'm just going to be a stay-at-home mum. And then I tried for that for a bit and realised that I can't do that very well either. And I felt, <laughs> felt, felt even worse. What really encouraged me was I hadn't, hadn't realised, but I had a, a network of support of other women surveyors who quite literally scooped me up off the floor. You know, one of them gave me her job and said, right, you know, you're going to start teaching valuation. There you go. You start on Monday. You know, other people put me in contact with with other people. They supported me doing the the summit. And, you know, building that network, I didn't quite know how I did it. If I thought about it and thought about planning to build my network, I'd be thinking, well, I need to go out and go to events and I need to talk to people and and share what I do. And does that mean I have to be really popular and everybody has to like me? And, you know, you can see sort of how an imposter syndrome spiral of thought can, can happen. But actually that network, that initial network that supported me came about because I allowed myself to be vulnerable, to share some of the things that were just not great for me, warts and all. And when I did that, I didn't just get sympathy. I didn't get, you know, oh, shut up, Mary, and just get on with the job. What I got back from, particularly from women, was, I hear you. I'm in the same boat. Yeah, this is pretty crappy, isn't it? And we talked about things. And I got to know people, really know people. And that's really you know, the, the power of building a network of, of real support is when you, you open up and you, you share your vulnerabilities. You know, Brene Brown, um, if any of you who, who follow her work, I'm a, I'm a big fan. You know, but she talks about the courage and strength that we have when we, when we share our vulnerability. Just having that, that power of that network. Uh, and women are greater. Women are wired to tend and befriend. You know, they want to help each other. We want to nurture each other on. And there's lots of research uh, around that. And when you see that really in action, it's amazing. Those women picked me up off the floor, dusted me down, you know, got me moving again. And as I've gone through my career, I owe my career to my Women in Surveying Network, really, as it stands now. And that's what it means to me. Brilliant. So if I can just talk about the Surveyors Hub. In May 2019, I think you'd started the Surveyors Hub. Uh, now it's got over 2,700 members. Um, obviously, that is how, how I see it, and a lot of other people are very successful. I, there's an awful lot of feedback on the group from an awful, especially students, which very regularly say how it's just a, an incredible uh, resource. 
did you predict this traction or, or was it planned or how did it start? Was it after like just like every good idea, you know, six glasses of wine round a, <laughs> a table of somebody saying, I've got a great idea or how did it, how did it start? Do you know what? For many years, um, even when I was working in my, my corporate role, I thought there, there wasn't a place where surveyors can hang out and connect. So yes, there's, you know, corporate conferences, CPD days, that kind of thing. Um, and sometimes we attend those and they always feel a bit awkward, you know, introducing yourself or, or not and things that, that whole networking in real life, I think. And so I'd always thought, you know, there must be a way to do this. And lots of, you know, the bigger corporate companies, you know, we've got to think about technology. Technology back then wasn't what it was, you know, and to build a members forum or to build um, a forum for for people who work in a corporate, it takes money and it takes management and it's money to build it, management to, to set it all up. But the key thing is it needs engagement and it needs a purpose. What's the point of bringing everybody together? And I noticed, so in my role, uh, so I started out as a surveyor in Croydon doing all the typical inspections. And it was a fabulous patch to learn from. But then in about 2008, I moved to a central role and I was dealing with complaints and claims and everything from your PVQs and your, your down valuations all the way through to the big juicy stuff, I guess. And what I learned there was a lot about not just to handle those things. I learned a lot about customers and clients or whatever you want to call them. And I learned a lot about employee engagement and and the link between the two and how a surveyor feels and and the decisions that surveyors make. And to do a job, you need to be technically competent, well-supported, but you need to have the wisdom to know what to do in the moment. And when you're out on site and you see something, very often you don't have somebody to ask. I didn't. Or, or when you get back and you're doing your report and it's late at night, you know, and everyone else in, in your, your business has gone home and you haven't got anybody to ask. And so it really sort of, the seed was planted there of, you know, what if? Because when I when I dealt with the claims and the claims that I dealt with weren't just with a corporate firm, they were panel firms. So I got a good cross-section of one-man bands, smaller SMEs all the way through. And on and a lot of the the difficult ones, a surveyor would often say, you know, oh, we've got a claim or we've got a complaint. And they'd always say, oh, I knew that one was going to be a problem. And they didn't trust their gut instincts or they didn't, you know, ask the question. They didn't stop and, do, you know, get advice or, or do a building survey instead of a home buyer or whatever. And so that, that seed was always planted of, you know, how can we support people in a different way? And so fast forward a number of years, we've got technology, we've got Facebook. And I'd, I'd thought about it. And um, and we're going to um, an RICS roadshow, Surveys and Practice Roadshow, and I was auditing my good friend and colleague, Larry Russon, to be audit our trainers, you know, to make sure they're, they're up to speed. And I got chatting to some surveyors in the break and I asked them, how did they network? How did they connect? And they said, oh, we're on LinkedIn. We're on LinkedIn. And I acquired the delegate list. And out of 74 people, only four were on LinkedIn. And I thought, how are they getting connected? And so I asked some more questions and they said, well, actually, we come to places like this, <laughs> you know, or, you know, I don't, I don't know many surveys. You might, some of them have a little WhatsApp group, but they don't, they don't have anybody. And so I thought, well, if they're not on LinkedIn, I wonder where they are. And so I set this group up. Was it after a glass of wine? Probably to give me the confidence to do it. It might have been, but I set it up and I invited 30 people. And I thought if 50 people turn up or, or come into the group, that would be amazing. 
amazing. And then it just kept on growing. And it's been a really interesting experience. I love hearing the feedback that people share and they say it's made a difference. I get loads of messages, good and bad, frustrations as well. But I'm glad that there's this network where people can come together. And I created the space and they come for the content, but they're staying for the community and they have built their own community. I also think it's the nature of the beast. There are going to be, I mean, if you think about the vast array, the the flavors of surveyors, as you would call it, although it's really geared towards residential on there, you've got so many different levels of competence, so many different levels of specialism, so many different areas, geographical areas and considerations. So it's it's not going to be a one size fits all. There's going to be a few uh, crossovers there, but it's uh, for me as um, an APC mentor and supervisor and counsellor, it's the first place that I guide students to because I think it is a, a great resource. And I'm also slightly resentful that it wasn't available when I was um, going through my judgeship. But um, no, I think it's absolutely great. So we really met through the Mastermind. So this is a program that you run. I found it fantastic because it, it really gave quite a holistic view, teaching overall business discipline, but completely aimed at the surveying industry. I find that many surveyors are fantastic at inspecting and report writing, but maybe not necessarily efficiently managing business procedures or selling ourselves as effectively as we could do. How did this come about? How did it start? So after I left my corporate role and I was working for myself, I set up my business. Initially, I was going to do customer experience. I thought I'm done with surveying. I'm going to do more customer experience. I'm qualified in that as well. And I thought I'll go into organizations and tell them how it should be done, do some workshops and things. And I worked with quite a few construction companies and it was great. But I realized lots of things. I don't like working by myself. You know, just like I don't like to talk to myself on a podcast. <laughs> I don't I don't like being by myself. But also, you know, that corporate culture. And I think perhaps in being a bit raw, having coming out of that, I didn't feel comfortable with that either. And so it took a, a while for me to work out, well, what's the right balance? And what I have now is I work for myself. I, you know, I do a lot of uh, private one-to-one coaching and business mentoring with people. But then I'm also managing director of, of Blue Box, where I've got a lovely bunch of guys and gals and I feel part of something and it's a nice small, small business. So I feel like I found a really nice sweet spot. But as I was going through all of that over the past few years, I realized how much I'd learned about business at a corporate level, you know, and, and as a bigger company and how much I had to learn as a smaller one man band or one woman band and what, what that involves and all the things I needed to set up. It was interesting because when I started to do that, and again, it's sort of the power of your network and people that you, that you know. I'd been part of a leadership program a few years before the one I mentioned earlier um, through an organization called One of Many, which I'm now a coach for, and it's a women's leadership program. And I got to meet so many different women who did so many different things, jobs I'd never even knew were that you could earn money from. And there were women there who worked for themselves, everything from making pictures out of buttons on their kitchen table to running multi-million pound PR firms. And when I went to start to work for myself, I asked, how do I do this? And what do I do? And they all helped. They, you know, helped and helped me shape it. And so again, the idea of, well, you know, a a network and, and that support, what would that look like? And how would that work in surveying? So I'd always sort of had the the seed planted, 
And being part of Blue Box, and, and many of the people who will be listening will know of Blue Box, those who are perhaps sort of newer to in the industry might not, but they're, they're the technical authors. They, I like to think of them as the engine room. You know, they've written guidance notes, books. You know, Phil and Chris, who I work with, wrote the book that I learned, that used to learn in college, and I got them to sign it when Chris retired and I took over. So they're really technical experts, and I felt a bit, little bit intimidated, to be honest, joining them. But my role there was more management and, and operational and so, yeah, I always sort of had this idea of, you know, what do I bring to the party? You know, I'm not a technical expert in Japanese knotweed or dampness or expert witness or, or whatever, but I bring that business experience. And so at the start of 2020, I ran a very small pilot, you know, just some weekly coaching, a bit of learning on all, you know, all kinds of sort of business basics, but also concentrating on this personal development side because when you work for yourself you are your business and that's where it sort of where it started and lo and behold you then have a global pandemic and our our blue box business our training business actually had a really tough year we lost clients nobody wants cpd very generously the rics gave all of their cpd for free we're giving it away for free yeah yeah and so it was like well, well what do we do And also at that time, I had to think about my own mental health. Like many people, you know, March 23rd, the UK locked down and it was, okay, all of a sudden I've got to homeschool two kids. My husband was working from home. He was the breadwinner effectively. And so I had to juggle this role. And so I I concentrated on a couple of things. I sort of cleared the decks sort of, you know, nine till five, because you can guarantee if you decide to plan something, the kids will pay up. If you don't, then you can sneak a piece of work in. So I committed to doing the podcast, which we'd launched a couple of weeks before. And I recorded it at, you know, six and seven in the morning and at weekends. And I thought about, well, what can I do of a weekend to earn money? And also, you know, for my sanity to keep something going. And so I went back to the idea of the, this sort of mastermind and developed it further and you joined as one of the group as hardcore on a Sunday 8am morning to learn more, to develop yourself um, and to think about your business and build your network. And I have to say, it's, it's one of the things I absolutely love doing, seeing how people can connect with each other, how they transform their thinking. I think most importantly, it's about empowerment. It's about empowering yourself. And, and I absolutely love it. We're on our, you know, as we go into doing this, you know, our, our fourth round of it. And yeah, I, I absolutely love it. Uh, Justin Mason asked, what advice would you give the 16-year-old Marion now? Oh, so at 16, I was making the decision whether to do, um, to go to art college rather than start my A-levels. And I would go back and say, go to art college. Now that would have meant I would not have had a career at all in surveying, but I think that following your instincts, you know, and doing something that you love. And it's weird, you know, because I was really good at art. Am I good? If you asked me to draw something now, it'd be really rubbish, you know, but I was really, really creative and, you know, I I could draw things, you know, put put my mind to it. And it's interesting because I I started my A-levels and then I just totally switched off and I just didn't do anything arty or creative for many, many years. And and what I've discovered though, is I'm quite a creative thinker. I'm quite creative in the work that I do, you know, putting together the hub and the podcast and those things. It's a creative way of 
uh, bringing my creativity to the work that I that I do now rather than sitting down learning how to, to draw. But I think if I'm honest, one of the things that put me off about joining the art college was that everybody looked a bit grungy and we're into, you know, certain types of music where I was like a bit more hip hop. <laughs> so, so, you know, maybe that was the other thing, uh, you know, I'd have to dye my hair black and wear Wrong eyeliner and I didn't want to do that. Yeah. You know. Well, I mean, also, um, Ruben Miller was also in the same group. Uh, he... You've been busy asking everybody about I, I know, yeah. <laughs> I've got a quote from your mum here somewhere. As I'm oh, joking. no. <laughs> I'm joking. So Ruben Miller said that he, he, he really admires your openness and humanity and wondered how you got into well-being and if you've faced any challenges that have triggered this. It sounds weird now. I've always been quite shy. I mean, I'm not very shy now, but as I was growing up I was always quite shy you know I went to a, to um, a Catholic school in the next town my parents were, were divorced so I didn't sort of have many uh, friends and I was actually quite depressed as a, as a teenager really really struggled with you know that teenage angst and god if we'd had the internet back then or other things and so I've always been mindful of when I feel good and when I don't feel good about things when I had my daughter so I've got two children, uh, Max, who's 11, and Sophie, who's now five, nearly six. When I have my daughter, things just change. And I don't know if it was bec- it was having a girl that did it, or actually, as I look back now, so I was 39, 40 uh, when she was born, and I, I think I probably hit menopause. And menopause can actually affect women, you know, with their emotions and, and depression. And I think I just had a whole storm of maternity hormones going back to work and I was more senior the second time and I thought oh, I can do this I can really rock this and I didn't I failed spectacularly I came back from maternity leave and my job moved from you know working in Milton Keynes or to having to commute to Manchester three times a week and I couldn't stay overnight because my daughter was breastfeeding because she had a milk allergy so I had a breast pump I used to carry it in a backpack like a Ghostbusters backpack you know and so at that stage, I just had this storm of everything going on in my life and not really understanding it because I've got a senior job. I've had a child before and should know how to do all of this. And I just felt awful. I think there wasn't one particular moment, but one thing that did happen, I was coming back from Manchester. I used to get up really early, get there early and then get sort of the quarter past two train back, uh, back down south. And I was rushing, used to run everywhere, rushed, got on the, got, got a coffee. I didn't drink coffee my whole life until I had my daughter because she never slept. And I got back, you know, got on the train and I, you know, rushed on and I bumped into effectively a guy who looked like he could have been on the Diet Coke advert. He was amazingly gorgeous and I poured coffee all over him. And I was mortified, but, and he, and he just looked at me and said, you okay? You, you look really grey. And I just thought, thanks, mate. No, like, yeah, yeah, okay. You know, and I sat down um, and thought, oh, I've just totally ruined what could have been an amazing moment in my life. And I sat down and he looked in the mirror and I looked awful. I just looked awful. And then I realised I was on the train direct going to Euston that wouldn't stop at Milton Keynes and I didn't have my breast pump and you know, it was just a spiral. And I actually took a, a few days off after that, but I didn't tell my work. I didn't tell them how I was feeling because I thought I could deal with all of this. And it was really hard. One of the things, the great things I'm really grateful for that um, the company I worked for did is they they had um, an organisational psychologist 
where the senior management were having some business coaching. Uh, a lady called Carrie Glass, and she she lives in Australia now, but she's a, she's an amazing lady. And I think they must have thought there's this crazy pregnant lady. And I, I felt like I was always known as the pregnant one. I've only had two kids, do you know what I mean? But this crazy woman, we don't know what to do with her. And so I had a few sessions with her. And she was amazing because she got me to think about how do you notice what's going well? How do you notice what's going right in your life? And even on a really, really granular level. And so even things like when you wake up in the morning and you open your eyes, how do you know it's going to be a good day? And it would be things like, well, you know, the child's asleep and I can have a shower and clean my teeth before the baby wakes up. We have a morning disco. That used to be our thing. We'd have a morning disco and everybody would be happy jumping, you know, getting out of the car, you know, getting out and into the car and drop off and the trains would be on time and, and things. And when you get so wrapped up in all the bad things that are happening, you fail to see the small things that are going well. It's really important that you concentrate on those. And that helped me enormously in concentrating and noticing what was going well. And I noticed things like what what I was doing well at work, things that I liked to do. And it it really sort of all, all, all sort of snowballed from there. Am I you know, am I a gym bunny? Do I go running? No, I get stuck at week four to five on the couch to 5k, but that's okay. You know, do I eat healthily all the time? No, I don't. I give myself a break, but I do think, I do believe in, in, you know, mental fitness, not necessarily, you know, to what mental health, you know, keep my mental fitness and that we've got to look after ourselves, you know, and I've got to do that for my, for my kids and for my family. But I also, the things that I've learned through being a coach and coaching people and supporting people is that that can take a lot from you. I find it quite energizing, but it can take a lot from you. And I've got, I've had to learn on, you know, when to switch off. Now, the thing about running a huge community is that people come to you with their problems. When I did the Women in Spain Summit, now I literally had women coming to me who were being bullied on site and feeling quite fearful for their safety. What do you do with things like that? You know, I've had trainee surveyors come to me who find themselves in really difficult situations at work and I worry about them, you know, but you've got to find a way of dealing with that, protecting yourself. But and I think that's why empowerment, empowering people to go and do the next thing is is so important. It's funny you mentioned about the um, people coming to you. Leslie Milson mentioned that you appear to be a constant route of support for so many within our industry. But who do you reach out to in particular from time to time, if anyone? If anyone. I do have my networks of support for different things. So the guys and gals at Blue Box, you know, they're my sounding board in terms of industry things that that are happening. I've got an amazing network of women in surveying who I talk to about how I'm feeling, you know, and, and I think part of it, you've got to be open. You know, you can't carry these things by yourself. So I, I share with them the good and the, the bad. In terms of business, I've got, you know, I have business coaching so that I know what I'm what I'm doing. If I come across something tricky that I can then then reach out to. One of the things that has really helped me is journaling, you know, and, and writing things down and, you know, getting things out of my head. So I think I have a uh, I think it I think what works for me is a variety of people and, and networks and different ways that I can get grounded again, you know, and that could be going out for a walk in the woods. It could be a rough and tumble with my kids. It can be having a good old chat with my, my mates, but knowing that I've got different options because if any one doesn't work, 
know, for example, you know, with, with the lockdown, you couldn't go out. You know, a lot of people would struggle with that, you know. So so I, I have a, a, a variety of things. Brilliant. Sort of to recap in terms of the, the topics that we've covered, we've got the um, the Surveyors Hub, which is obviously on Facebook, which people can join if they're a student or if they are involved in residential surveying whatsoever. And if you're obviously not part of it, maybe question if you're in surveying at all. Um, <laughs> it's, really, it's really interesting because you say about residential, there's quite a few commercial surveyors in there who do the odd residential bit of surveying and you know, but they, they need that support. And some of the feedback I've had on the podcast has been, and I've seen on, on LinkedIn and, and Instagram and, you know, when people sort of share it and they say, don't be put off by the residential stuff. There's some good stuff in here. So I think I'm going to start broadening into all flavours of surveyors, okay. but I just happen to be residential. <laughs> so we'll see where that goes. <laughs> yeah, yeah. And obviously on there, you, you you post when the next sort of mastermind cohort is, as well as any sort of blue box opportunities through training that are, that are offered. Uh, we've also talked about the women in surveying groups. If, if somebody wanted to join that, you know, who is a woman, where would they go? So they can have a look at the womeninsurveying.com website or just check it out on Facebook. You know, it's it's interesting. A lot of people, you know, aren't a fan of Facebook. I'm not either, but it's a great tool and it's a free tool that people can, can use. So you just use it for what you need to use it for. You don't have to share your life story or your bank balance details, you know. Well, thank you very much. So thanks for listening to today's podcast. I hope you enjoyed it. I really do love hearing your feedback. So please feel free to drop me a message. You can email me at marion.ellis at blueboxpartners.com or you can find me on social media at Marion Surveyor.